A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Bill Eddy. Thanks so much for listening. And I just want to explore a curiosity I have. Um, I remember learning at one point about a certain, I, I suppose maybe it's a disorder, um, and, and I didn't recognize it in the book, and, and I might be misremembering this, but that there, there there's a certain type of person that has no conscience. Like, and, and I remember like reading about this kid that killed his sister. It was like an eight or 10 year old and had zero remorse, like didn't even perceive it was wrong. And it was like, yeah. whoa, is that, does that exist to your knowledge? And is that different from what we're talking about? Or is it a component? That's within antisocial personality disorder. As I said, sociopath is an equivalent term, about 4% of the U.S. adult population. Mm-hmm. Psychopath is about 1% percent of the U.S. population, about a quarter of the people with antisocial personality are psychopaths. And they're the ones who are really, um, you know, your serial killers, people that are really willing to hurt other people without a conscience. Um, they're, they're the more extreme version of antisocial personality disorder, but part of antisocial personality disorder is a lack of remorse. So you may actually have 4% of the population that doesn't have a conscience and doesn't care if they hurt you or not. That's, that's now, scary. <laughs> at, at one point earlier, you asked me um, Why is it increasing? Uh, about where this comes from. Right, and so right, right. I don't know if you want me to plunge yep. into that now. Please, let's do that. Okay. So there seems to be basically three factors in personality development. First of all is your genetic heritage, what you're born with genetically, just like your teeth, your height, your eye color, all of that stuff. Second is very important is early childhood. First four or five years is when you're really developing a foundation for your personality. The third is the culture you grow up in. And so looking back on uh, the high conflict personalities I've dealt with, personality disorders I've dealt with, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of these high conflict personality, personality disorders are inborn, that they genetically dispose, predispose towards being antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, et cetera, especially antisocial personality. That may be 80% or 90% of where their personality comes from. Now, borderline narcissist, histrionic, paranoid seem to be more early childhood exaggerated by their culture. So, uh, for example, narcissistic personality 
they talk about early childhood that a child just might learn they've they've got to look out for themselves. Maybe they're abused as kids and they go, why am I being abused? Maybe I'm different. Maybe I'm special. Maybe I'm better than everybody else. And they grow up developing this, this false image of being better than everybody else. And they hold on to that to get through life. And they go, I'm getting beaten because I'm special. And so that helps them hold themselves together. Um, and so that early childhood's a factor, uh, borderline personality, uh, maybe three quarters of people with that were abused as kids. And so physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, um, borderline personality just hasn't developed a stable self-image and emotions. Um, so early childhood can be a big factor, histrionic, paranoid Life circumstances, abuse, especially by your own parent, um, can really throw things off. So that's real significant. But culture seems to draw out or discourage um, personality disorder behavior. And so if you look at why is this happening more now, I believe, first of all, early childhood has slowly become more and more unstable. And part of that is just because of our mobility. You used to have aunts and uncles, grandma, grandpa, and a dozen kids growing up. You could kind of latch on to a reasonable person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're the only child and your parents are divorced and you're spending most of the time with mom or most of the time with dad and they have a personality disorder, there's a good chance you're going to pick up a lot of their behavior and sure. maybe genetically have it as a predisposition anyway. So today's early childhood is, I think, harder than a few generations ago. Um, and lack of support, though so we, we move far away. People don't have relatives. Plus, you know, families are much smaller now, one or two kids in so many families that there's not as many people to rely on to be role models, et cetera, yeah. to turn to for soothing when there's a problem. And I do a lot of high-conflict divorces, and the kids are often the most stable part of the family, and they, they look to each other for stability. Wow. And fortunately, you know, family court judges, when they have to make the decisions, try to keep the kids together um, at mom's house, together at dad's house, going back and forth, whatever, because often the kids are, are the biggest source of support. Um, so all of this um, is, are factors. The culture at large that you grow up in also has an impact on your personality. A big way to think about that is look at people born around 1920. That became what's called the greatest generation. They went through the Depression, World War II. They worked hard. They stayed in their job for 40 years. They retired with a pension. They took care of the company. The company took care of them. They took their relatives in in the Depression, and their relatives took care of them, and they didn't talk much about themselves. People came back from the war. Maybe they told some war stories, but they didn't talk about their buddy being you know, blown apart next to them in the foxhole. They kept a lot of stuff inside. 
Now you picture, say, you're born 1980. That's the year a personal computer came out. You have to be more individualistic. You have to learn all these electronic devices. You spend a lot of time alone. You're in a much smaller family. Um, you don't have a company that's going to take care of you. You don't have a company you're going to spend 40 years with. And so we become much more individualistic in our personalities. Everybody, uh, yeah. each generation's become much more narcissistic in a sense, but not necessarily disordered. That's still a minority of people, like 6%. Yeah. yeah. So these factors, and what's changing today is the culture more than anything, and the culture is giving us images today of dysfunctional behavior, violence, narcissism, disrespect, um, mood swings, all of these things in our culture are bringing out, you know, so someone say genetically oriented towards a personality disorder, this might reinforce the negative side. Yeah, um, no, that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. And then and then of course with this this additional factor of, you know, the rate of change, the magnitude yeah. and rate of change and the uncertainty yeah. that that introduces uh, on on top of or in addition to everything you've mentioned. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And and I think we we really haven't caught hold of it yet, and we haven't learned. You know, freedom's a great thing, but there has to be some limits. And we're starting yeah. to learn, like like the internet, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all these need to have some limits. And now we're looking at where should the limits be? Yeah. And so, but but things are invented so quickly that they take off before we've set any limits on them. Yeah. That's why I encourage parents. I say, really control what your kids see. You know, because what they see, they absorb. And yep. if they see bad behavior, they're going to want to mirror that bad behavior. Yeah. And, and so you want to, you know, not be exposed to so much of that and, and have more personal connection. It's real easy to everybody be busy on their phones, yeah. you know. People calling, texting each other in their house instead right. of going yeah. to talk to each other. Yeah, I have these friends. I was just talking about this last night with a friend more and more. Often these days, I don't know if you have this, but I have friends who will record an audio or sometimes a video message and send it to me instead of calling me or even texting me. And they want me to watch like a minute and a half video of them telling me something when they could have picked up and called. Right. You know, it's pretty amazing how in some ways we're more connected than ever, but also more isolated than ever. Yes. Yes, and, and the, the in-person facial expressions, tone of voice, all of that influences brain development yeah. and influences, is, to some extent, our personality. They say that the more alone you are, the more you tend to feel paranoid. Mm. And so if you're spending a lot of time alone doing text messages or whatever, yeah. you may become more paranoid. People, the research shows if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, you actually may become depressed because you see everybody having a wonderful time and, and yeah. you're not. Right. But that's all images. That's not right. real. The good isn't real as well as the bad isn't real. We got to yeah. get a balance. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and, and in addition to that, to everything that we're talking about here is perhaps a, a contributor or a cause of, you know, the, the rise of these, um, you know, personality disorders. I tend to think as well, maybe this, uh, you know, this nature, what do they call it? Vitamin, 
like vitamin N for you know nature time and, yeah. and you add to that yep. it's no surprise to me when you look at what we're putting in our bodies you know the food we're eating when we extract the nutrients from the soil replace yeah. it with chemical fertilizers genetically engineer the food put, inject it with preservatives consume this and that is affecting our physiology our our mental state you have all that and and we're not I think as a society spending as much time in nature. Yeah. You know, and that's setting aside any discussion, perhaps, of something that gives us spiritual nourishment, you know, yeah. and a sense of connection maybe to a higher power or to something bigger than ourselves. And it's like, wow, this yeah. is pretty, pretty remarkable, but totally understandable, I think. Yeah. And I think we have to realize that, that we really do need all of this. And, you know, I, I look at, I read a lot about the brain. And they say the brain needs green. You know, you need to see trees and grass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to get outside to do that. Yeah. And, and being active uh, physically and, and not so and, sedentary and, you know. Yeah. yeah. Human beings. It's interesting. I saw an article recently that said uh, why humans are so busy when koalas sleep, sleep 22 hours a day. Why don't humans sleep 22 hours a day? And it may have something to do with early survival. That, you know, we're not that big, yeah. we're not that strong compared to lions and tires and other, you know, yeah. threats. So, we had to learn how to run and keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and I've read that koalas do eat cocoa leaves. So, the fact that they're high all day, <laughs> I don't know, my, maybe. I don't know. That, but yeah. It, well, maybe. they seem happy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, I'm not sure they practice monogamy the same way humans do either. And I know that might not be a contributing factor, but... There are definitely differences in the way we've organized ourselves socially. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. okay. Um, I want to keep us on track here. And uh, I want to just say this. I normally leave this to later in the conversation, but I know we maybe have a little less time than I do with many guests. So, what I want to do is, is put um, in here two things. One is to express to you my gratitude for you sharing your wisdom and your experience with me and everyone listening, because one, one of the things I've seen is that many people can be incredible experts on a topic, but I don't think that makes them effective teachers. And mm -hmm. you seem to, to actually have a, a great mastery of explaining these things. And, and I want to thank you for making time to share that. And one thank way you. I've endeavored to show my gratitude is I've gone online and I've made a microloan on your behalf to a woman in India through kiva.org. So there's a lady named Sabari who lives in a place called Burdawan, India, who will oh. use this money to purchase rice to help expand her business and improve the quality of oh, life fantastic. for herself and her family. So oh, that's thank wonderful. You. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. That's a great, what goes around comes around, you know. It's, I, I like to think expand. so. Yeah. Yeah. So th thanks for giving me a, a reason to go make that loan. And by the way, uh, Sabari's household income is about 90 US dollars a month. So I hope That's this will make amazing. a real difference. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. The, the other thing that I want to put uh, here in the interview is if, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, maybe they want to work with you, um, what would you have them do? Well, basically, I've got a wonderful website, which I can't take credit for at all. Um, so my, my colleague of mine, uh, Megan Hunter, and I own High Conflict Institute. And she has really developed the, the business side of this. So we have a fantastic website that has a lot of resources. So we've got books uh, on this subject. 
Um, we have a video training. Uh, we arrange consultations, so live consultation. Uh, I do it by phone or by Skype or Zoom. Uh, we also have free articles, over 50 free articles. So someone says, I don't have much money. Is there something for me? Yes, there is. So the articles really help um, people in terms of how to talk to high-conflict people, how to write emails when they're attacking you so you don't attack them back. We call them BIF response emails, brief, informative, friendly, and firm. And they really calm things. Um, we have a, just a lot of explanations, a lot of what to do, and a lot of why. Uh, I've got one on the brain. Are you talking to the right brain? Because the right and left brain may be part of the problem here. Some high-conflict people don't have as strong a connection between the two hemispheres, so they have a harder time thinking rationally when they're upset. And most of us can kind of be somewhat upset and somewhat rational at the same time. I mean, all of us, if we're real upset, we can't be rational because we're in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. But some people have a harder time with that. And so how you talk to the person kind of almost influences how they're going to respond to you. Yeah. And I do want to mention that there are tools for calming upset people, any upset person, you don't have to decide if someone's a high conflict person. You can use the tools we teach with anybody, yeah. calming them, helping them analyze their choices, helping them um, look at whether information is distorted or not, uh, setting limits. And that's such a big one because high conflict people have a hard time stopping themselves. So the people yeah. around them go, whoa, and how you go, whoa, makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. No, that's great. Okay. Um, so I want to pivot our conversation now to the enlightening lightning round, if that's okay with mm. you. Okay. So again, this is a series of questions that are designed for me to ask briefly. You're mm -hmm. welcome to answer as long as you want. But my aim is to ask the question and for the most part, stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. okay? okay. All right. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life oh. is like a merry-go-round. Okay. <laughs> Number two. What is something at which you wish you were better? Speaking up about social problems I see, especially in front of me. Okay. Number three. This one is a stretch, I acknowledge, but if you were required to wear a t-shirt every day for the rest of your life with a slogan on it or a saying or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Go for it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Number four, what book other than your own, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Well, I'll go back a lot of years. Uh, one that I used to refer a lot. I haven't as much recently because it's been more focused, but I'd say uh, The Road Less Traveled. Um, Scott Peck. Yeah. Why yeah. that book? I think because it really was one of those books that said, let's really stop and think and let's okay to be different. Um, and he wrote it so personally. I think it was so well written. Um, that it, it just kind of opened, 
opens your mind to to everything. Yeah. 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 That's probably 30 years old by now, maybe more. Yeah. But maybe that's part of how my life course has gone as I've taken some roads less traveled to end up where I am today. So maybe that's why I like it. Right on. All right. Thank you for that. Um, next question. So I understand that you, you travel quite a bit. Yeah. Um, what's one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, something I do, I really, first of all, I really enjoy meeting people, but I enjoy watching people. And so I, you know, because I, I go and give seminars, a lot of times I'm in the downtown of big cities. And I just love getting out on the sidewalk and walking along and, you know, seeing people in stores, seeing people talking to each other, just being around a whole lot of people, but absorbing kind of what's special here, you know, what goes with the architecture here, maybe going on a tour through a, a historic building. Um, I just, you know, like I said at the beginning, I really, people, there's something, there's something about people that I find fascinating as well as uh, personally reassuring. Um, so I, and <laughs> this, is, this is an interesting thing. So when I'm traveling, I often eat out at restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so one of my favorite things is watching couples having dinner at restaurants and figuring out how long have they known each other. Is this like an early date? Mm -hmm. Is this a couple that have been together for years or a couple that's maybe been together a year? And also looking at the body language. So you'll see one person's leaning forward and they're excitedly telling a story. And sometimes the other person's leaning forward, excitedly listening. And sometimes they're like leaning way back, like, yeah. you know, uh, I can't wait to get away from this person. <laughs> right. And also there's the couples that are both on their cell phones texting away. They've usually been together a little longer. Um, so I, I really like watching people in just normal interactions, everyday life. So mm -hmm. I always try to get out on the streets, um, try to get out in the restaurants. So. Right on. Okay, next question. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, I think physical exercise. Um, my first 30 years, um, I don't think I did anything except gym class in uh, high school and hated that. But, you know, since the 30s is uh, exercising, uh, running, hiking, uh, cross-country skiing, um, getting outdoors, really valuing getting outdoors, getting farther away, not just like a city park, but out in the mountains. Yeah. So going to uh, places like um, uh, Utah uh, for cross-country skiing and uh, Colorado for uh, hiking mountains and, uh, of course, um, California with, with our our redwood forests and all of that. So, yeah. So this is kind of the opposite of my prior answer where I was in the city watching people. I also yeah. like getting way far away and not, not getting out of cell phone reception. That's always yeah. nice. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe with 5G or even the next gen 
<laughs> we'll look back and say, remember when you could still go somewhere where there wasn't cell service? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, about HCPs. That mm. I wish everybody knew that there's these patterns of behavior that seem to be almost the opposite. And that it's not that people are bad people. They just don't know. It's just like alcoholism and addiction yeah. where it takes over the person and they can't see it but everyone yeah. around them can see it and that yeah. they have patterns of attacking people, blaming people and staying stuck and friendless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wish that more Americans that every American knew that too. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive white glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks like monitoring and maintenance to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. Um, question number eight. What is the secret to making long-term committed relationships work like marriages or other intimate relationships? <laughs> well, that's an easy one. And that's taking responsibility. And so when people blame others, that's when there's a problem. When people blame themselves, and maybe blame isn't the right word, but where they take responsibility themselves <laughs> and are always asking themselves these two questions. First is, what's my part in this problem? And the second is, what can I do differently next time? And frankly, those two questions, if you ask those questions regularly of yourself, you don't have a personality disorder or a high conflict personality, because that's where personality disorders are stuck. They can't see themselves and high conflict personalities are stuck because they're blaming others, specific others. I love that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Okay. And then last question here in the enlightening lightning round is, it's related to money. And it's um, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something that you're always sure or you're always sure to do or never to do with it? Huh. Well, I think making sure to save money is just always saving some, um, getting to a point in life where that actually grew. Um, now there's more than I put in. And that's because I put it in all along. So I think even saving, you know, a dollar a week, um, just learning, learning to save, um, to me is the most important thing about money. Money is, to me is more about security so I'm free to do what I want rather than um, having shiny objects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, there's wisdom in that, in that um, perspective for sure. Okay, so congratulations. You survived the enlightening lightning round and you did it admirably. <laughs> well done. Thank you. So thank you. Okay, I know we have just a few minutes. Um, by my clock, I'm thinking about 10, but you tell me. If we had 10 more minutes, is that good? or? Yeah, I, I can actually probably go 20 or 25 if we need it. Okay, yeah. great. If, you, if at any point you want to cut out, just let me know. That's great. No, this, um, is, this is great. I'm really enjoying it. So I probably good. don't need as much preparation for my next appointment. <laughs> okay, awesome. Good. So in the final portion of this interview here, I just want to turn our discussion to an exploration of the creative process of writing, 
Um, we could talk about speaking. We could even talk about marketing and promotion, which, you know, as, as we know, if you could write the greatest work in the world, but if no one knows about it, it's maybe not as fulfilling as it could be if it reaches and serves people. Um, so I'll start with this question because you have written, uh, I would use the word prolific, prolifically. <laughs> um, first of all, how many, how many books have you authored? Um, it looks like 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's many books. Have you done the thing where you've attempted to calculate the number of words you've written in your life? No. I know some oh authors do that. Yeah. And one <laughs> well, of the gentlemen that I interviewed recently, he was, he's still quite young. He's in his thirties, but he's, uh, he's racked up more than 2 million words. Wow. Whoa. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> but at any rate, so you, you are a prolific author and you have published, um, you know, 14 books my question is this, what's, this is, a, this is a big question and there's some hyperbole in it, but what's the most important thing you've learned about writing? Um, I would say just, just to do it. Um, I think how I got started was making little notes on post-its that I hope to put together someday. And then making notes on yellow pads and then, you know, typing up a chapter that came to mind and just came together one day, you know, in a couple hours. So I think it's the just do it approach mm -hmm. that no matter how large or small, when you've got something you think of that you might want is go ahead and write it down. Um, I've gone from squeezing things in. I've got 15 minutes and something I want to get down to five-hour blocks of time where I go and just totally concentrate and, and, and such. And a lot of how I write is uh, conversational. Yeah. And so I kind of picture myself telling somebody and that they really need to know for some reason. And I want them, I want to try to make it as simple and clear. And if they're stressed, that it should be easy to absorb. And I think that came from having clients, first as a therapist, then as a lawyer, and helping clients and talking to clients. So now, in many ways, I write my books for clients. Yeah, that, that is a question that I wanted to ask, which is, when you're in the act of writing, how aware are you of the reader? And it sounds like the answer to that is very aware. But to go a little further, do you imagine specific individuals or just kind of a composite persona that you're writing toward? What, how do you think of the reader as you're writing? It's, it's more um, general. It's like a group audience. So I'll think um, like a couple of my books I really wrote for judges. And so they're fairly, they're fairly thin because the judges <laughs> said, if, if we're going to read it, it can't be too long because we got so much other stuff we have to read. And so I remember thinking, kind of a group of judges is like, you need to know this and, yeah. and this will help you. Um, I think my different books had different audiences. So the five types of people who can ruin your life uh, is probably the broadest audience. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a book called Splitting, Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Someone with Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder. And I wrote that with some of the clients I knew, but people I didn't know yet, um, but thinking in terms of people who are going through the process themselves right now. And what's interesting, I kind of picture people reading it at home late at night, trying to figure out how to get through the next day. 
Yeah. And it's funny because I've talked to people who said, yeah, I've got your book by my bedside. It gives me reassurance. And it, so it, it kind of landed in, in their lives where I wanted it to, where it was that's beautiful. And, yeah. So I, I appreciated that. Uh, yeah. That, that's really neat. And yeah. I, I don't know if you have this experience, um, but I tend to think of writing a little bit like putting a message in a bottle, you know, and throwing it in the ocean that you never really know who might get it or how it might impact them. Will you talk about any experiences where someone has received your book in a way that was just right for what they were dealing with at the time? And it ended up being a really, a real source of gratification and fulfillment for you. Well, I get, I get feedback from time to time that people from really around the world, um, people, get my books in Australia and Canada and Europe and such. And, and they'll say this really came when I needed it. Um, and, and I totally changed my approach or I rewrote an email um, or I actually had one, one lawyer who was going to terminate, stop working with a high conflict client and change and pulled a letter out of the mail. Wow. Uh, and kept working with that client. A year later, the, all their issues were resolved satisfactorily. That is and so fantastic. So, yeah. So, so I get it's it's nice. I feel very fortunate that I get feedback that what I've written about is so much so close to what people are going through, and it's because I've gone through it with people before as a professional, yeah. but seeing clients, sometimes relatives, friends going through high conflict situations. And they're so they're so patterned. They're so right. predictable. And that's that's what I I keep being surprised. People write from around the world saying, Did you meet my mother? You know, <laughs> and they're serious, you know, right? Yes. Or yeah. do you know my boss? Because you described him exactly. And yeah. it's because they fit into these five basic patterns. Yeah. So that's, that's been very um, reaffirming to me. And I, I send back to people, I said, you made my day with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that, that's interesting. And it's right in line with something that, you know, of all people and someone else who has a San Diego connection there with you, um, Tony Robbins. You know, uh-huh. he was the one that introduced me to this idea that all human behavior is merely a series of patterns. And, yeah. and I hadn't seen that before, but what you're <laughs> describing, you know, it, it just reinforces that and where I used to be so perplexed by my own behavior and other people. And yeah. now, and not to say that I've divined all the mysteries of the universe, but things, there is a logic under so much of this that before with, you know, without these views was a total mystery. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, let me, let me just add something I wanted to make sure to get in here about why people may be inborn with some of these personalities. And I think that this is really part of human history, that each of these personalities really had survival value in certain situations, especially wartime, that these personalities may have thrived in wartime and been able to survive when other people got killed off. And so they could, you know, end the war and get to a time of peace when their personalities really aren't as helpful. And, and I think throughout history that there may have been really beneficial purposes for yeah. these per- personalities that don't, that, that don't, we don't really need those extreme behaviors now. And so we need to retrain people 
it's to not be wartime personalities yeah. <laughs> and to be more peacetime personalities. Um, but I think that's where they come from because so much people don't understand why they act this way and yeah. it's very adversarial. But if you were in a live or die setting, you want maybe that these are the folks sometimes. that lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and that helped others survive. And helped right. others survive. And yeah. that may be part of our human history. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's an interesting view for sure. So who has been influential in your development as a writer and what did you learn from them? Oh, wow. Well, there was, there was a woman oh, probably 20 years ago who was the sister of a friend, and, and I was starting to try to write some ideas. I actually started to try to write a novel when I became a lawyer after being a social worker and saw just all these interesting things. I wanted to tell stories about it, and I started trying to write a novel. And so I went to her sister and got some consultation. And she, she was very helpful to me. And it was, wasn't a lot, but she talked about trying to find my own voice. Mm. And that's my conversational style. Yep. My own audience, which I say is, nine, is the whole world. But for now, I've focused on families, legal cases, workplace situations, even someone politics. Um, so... Just over time, a lot of what she said came true. She also said, try to write every day, and mm -hmm. no matter how much. Um, she was one of those, just get, get going. Yeah. And if you can't think of anything else to write, write. I can't think of anything else to write today, so I'm writing this. Um, I don't know what to write. Next. Oh, I just had an idea. And yeah. so yeah. <laughs> you're kind of writing all of that, and your hand just starts taking over. Yeah. Is it, I mean, that's a thing that I've experienced in some other writers that I've interviewed for this um, report, which is there can be this sense in which writing becomes almost automatic. And it's almost that some, some greater intelligence. And again, I don't mean to be, you know, like totally mystical, but do you ever do that thing where you write and then you go back and you read it and you think, that's pretty good. Like, did I, did I write that? <laughs> you know? And it's happened sometimes. And I, I actually, that thoughts crossed my mind. Like maybe I am channeling somebody, somebody's yeah. directing my hand or my typing. Cause I, I go, you know, I didn't really have that idea until I started writing. And now there's like three paragraphs of this new stuff that makes sense that I never thought of before. Yeah. And every once in a while it feels like, you know, where did this come from? I, I have a theory and someone else pointed out to me, I should say it's their theory, from all of my life's work in these different fields, I've really learned so much about personalities. Yeah. And what they said is, Bill, you have a library of personalities in your brain, and, and you let us pick your brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I really do. I just have this massive storage of everything, like 40 years on personality. Yeah. And... I love questions because questions help. Oh, okay. That's over here. I'm going to pull that out and that might be useful to somebody. Yeah. So, and I think writing is like that. Often my writing comes because I had a conversation with somebody and there's something I want to explain more thoroughly. Yeah. No, that, that's beautiful. Let me, let me turn the conversation just a little bit to this idea of publishing, getting a book published, getting a book into readers' hands. Maybe this is um, along the lines of promotion, along marketing. 
um, things that I know a lot of writers hope, you know, they'll never have to deal with uh, yeah. or someone else will manage, you know, for them. But what have you learned in your experience about successfully um, getting a book into readers' hands? Well, that it's, it's a stumbling along journey. But for me, the book, my first book, uh, which we call High Conflict People and Legal Disputes, I wrote um, in my first few years of practice as a lawyer because I knew all this mental health stuff as a social worker that um, judges, lawyers, mediators didn't get. And in five minutes, I couldn't explain it. And so I started writing a book and it was like, I want to explain this. And so right around the year 2000, I really started writing the book and I sent out book proposals to publishers. And I think I probably sent it out to about 20 publishers and one responded. The others totally ignored me. And the one that responded said, well, this is kind of interesting, but there's no market for it. And so I was like, oh, but 2000, the internet, uh, websites, and a friend of mine was getting a degree in educational technology. He said, I need to build a website. Anybody need a website? I said, I do. Wow. <laughs> so he built a website. We put my book on it. And I sold probably 300 books through Amazon no um, with that. But it, it really was hard. And yeah. then because I speak at conferences uh, for mediators, speaking at a mediators conference, and there was a couple that were starting a book company, and they read my book, liked it, said they wanted to publish it. And so they published it. Then I, I looked for a review. and. Um, heard about Stop Walking on Eggshells, which is a book sold probably a couple million copies by now, written primarily by Randy Krager. And so I sent my book to her and she said, um, yeah, I'll write a review, but I really need you to write a, a book about people um, going through divorce with a, a borderline or narcissistic spouse. And so I ended up writing my, my second book like that. Um, this other publisher wanted me to write a book for everybody. So I wrote one called It's All Your Fault. And slowly the pieces came together. That's, I don't want to get too long with it. But I ended up eventually with an agent that helped me get five types of people with uh, Tartar Perigee, which is part of Random House, the biggest publisher in the world. So yeah. Maybe it took about 16 years, but it uh, <laughs> came that, along. That is dedication. And uh, I really admire that. And, and clearly, you know, your work is not just to feed your own ego or, you know, to enrich yourself. I mean, I think you wouldn't persist in, in it or be successful. But that, that's really beautiful. And, and what you've said about continuing to write, you know, reminds me of something that um, Ryan Holiday who I really respect as an author and as a promote a, a marketer. He talks about in many cases, the best marketing for your book is the next book you write. Yes. Books sell books. Yeah. That's what I've learned. Um, yeah. But they also sell seminars. And one thing I've learned is it really helps to be available as a speaker that a book and being a speaker, they, they really reinforce each other. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So, I want to be sure to ask this question and then maybe, maybe one more. Um, 
In your view, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Oh, boy. It's funny because I think of my writing as teaching in conversations and I don't think of myself as a, a flowery writer or really a skilled writer in terms of well-formed sentences. I, I, think, I think in paragraphs and I think I write in paragraphs. Um, and so each sentence itself mostly is just that it, it serves a purpose, that it explains something, it moves something forward. And one thing I've learned that's kind of exciting, and it's kind of from speaking conversationally, is I can have a long sentence and I can have a short sentence all in the same paragraph. And sometimes, you know, a sentence of a statement, and then the next sentence is, but it's not really that, period. And then this is what it really is. And it's almost like thinking out loud. Yeah, And I think that's appealing and it adds flow, makes it easy to read. Yeah. And so I think a good sentence moves things along. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and for what it's worth, I agree. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I think the final question here is just what advice or encouragement do you leave anyone listening with who wants to finish their book? Maybe they're in the middle of it and they, they, they're stuck somehow or... They haven't really begun, but it's something that they really want to do. What advice or encouragement do you have for, for people in those situations? I think the key is to just write the message you want to say. Just don't worry about how it looks, how it sounds. Just write what you want to say. You can always come back and edit it or get someone to help you edit. Think of what's the message you want to get across? Because I think a lot of people think, how can I say this dramatically or effectively or humorously or how can I do it? And I'd say, forget about how and just write the it, you know, get the it down. And it may trigger some ideas. Maybe, you know, I've written stuff and then added like three paragraphs at the B. I've written a chapter and I go, oh, I need to introduce it with like these three paragraphs that come afterwards. So what the chapter starts with may be one of the last things that I wrote. Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't know, just, um, just get it out, get it on paper. <laughs> I, I love that. And I've, I've heard a similar piece of advice that says, don't get it right. Get it written. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. yeah I love that. Well said. And and not my words, but okay. Well, well, Bill, I, I have enjoyed this so much and and I really did take away so much from, from this conversation and from reading your book. Uh, So again, I just want to thank you for making time and so much time um, with me and with, with our listeners. My pleasure. I'm really glad to have been on with you, Brian. I enjoyed it as well. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, 
I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.